0: Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to dig into a little bit of what's usually taught as literature. You'll learn about it in usually an English literature um, uh, class. We're going to learn about Jonathan Swift and uh, we're actually going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle. We're not going to critique the literature or his witty use of satire, of which he is arguably one of the best in all of Western civilization. He's straight fire. We're going to look at it from a little bit of a philosophical standpoint and also question why Jonathan Swift isn't referenced more in sociological, um, anthropological, philosophical critiques. um, Any other like Academic discourse that we think he's overlooked in. I mean, probably all of them. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely Other than we, literature. Yeah, yeah, I mean, literature. Like, everyone's read *A Modest Proposal*, and it is—it's fire. Um, his like kind of deadpan style satire there. Everybody's aware of that. But, but how come Jonathan Swift isn't spoken of in the same light as? Well, even people that we we look at in this channel, the Foucaults or the Webers or the Marxes or the whoever, is it just because he was an entertainer? I mean, even before we dig into this, like, what do you what do you think? Like, why this dude's fire? In mm-hmm. fact, the inspiration of this episode was uh, me scrolling through social media and looking at all the various memes, whether they were left leaning or right leaning political memes, and just thinking to myself, like. There's, There was a dude saying these very same things like 300 years ago, and we think we're all cool and hip and whatever. God, hip, what am I, like 75 years old? Like, Whatever. Anyway, we think we're like super witty and smart because we're saying these things now. Nah, this dude was saying this shit, again, like three centuries ago. Yep. Why is he overlooked? What do you think? I don't know. I don't really have a strong
1: opinion. I mean, like you said, I think he definitely gets his due in like literature. Like, Like you said, everyone's read something that he's written or at least part of something that he's written. But you're right, as far as like being a political
0: or social like analyst or critique, very overlooked. And we don't, I mean, I guess if you think about this from, again, a a purely like literary perspective, we look at some of like the other great satirists in or satirists in um, Western civilization, some of the ancient Greek ones or Roman ones. But we do even with those um, the the uh, the Euripides of the world. We'll like talk a little bit more about like their philosophical contributions more though more so than Jonathan Swift. Anyway, it just got me thinking, and that's the inspiration for this episode. Jonathan Swift is fire, and he he deserves some credit. Um, so real quickly, who is this dude? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a bio. You can wiki it; it's fine. Uh, he was born in Dublin, Ireland, in 1667, and he died uh, in Dublin, Ireland, in 1745. And um, He obviously witnessed some interesting things across his life, uh, namely English colonialism in Ireland, Um, but also in a way that he was able to, obviously as a writer, write from a point of privilege. And obviously his connections with church also kind of helped establish his his, his backing or I suppose his somewhat moral authority. And the fact Mm -hmm. that he used satire I think is also important real quick. Why most of his writings, or at least his earlier writings, were satirical, is it's a safe way to critique society. Mm-hmm. Why is satire, Saturday Night Lifestyle, for example, or South Park style? Why is that safe? Like you're still shitting on the oppressor, but you're doing so in a way where you can essentially like what, like what?
1: Yeah, I mean, it gives you like a pass, right? Because you can always say like, well, it's just comedy, like
0: it's not real, right? I don't really think this is just funny, yeah, or whatever. Uh, I, I mean, we can think about this even in, in, in ancient societies, again, with the Euripides or even Virgil and Roman, like, like they were critiquing society, but then most of the time they were able to get away with it because of, it's just entertainment. Mm-hmm. The same way a modern day Saturday Night Live or Family Guy, or I can't even, there's probably better satires than those yeah. now, but whatever. The same way they can say, oh, we're just critiquing, you know, the president in this way and it's a joke. It's all, it's all, it's all funny, right? It's all funny. Mm-hmm. Even though there's awfully obvious oftentimes, some very biting political critique in there. Yep. Okay, so that's Jonathan Swift in a nutshell. Like I said, I'm not going to go through his whole life. Um, just, yeah, I mean, he lived during um, England's colonization of Ireland. Actually, he lived well after the, the process had started, but he lived through it. So anyway, um, what I want to talk about is specifically his most famous work, and that, of course, is Gulliver's Travels. Now, most modern audiences are familiar of uh, with Gulliver's Travels in a way that's framed as sort of a children's story. And it is, it's it, like, I don't know that he intended it to be a children's story, but it is a wildly entertaining story of fantasy and giants and little people and all of these other things. And um, what we actually only learn about though, is usually Gulliver's first journey. He actually went on four journeys, um and we use the first one because again it has the most elements in it that can be transferred to a younger audience again, a giant little people but there's also i mean there's technically some political political inquiry in that and there are some morals and lessons that we're supposed to learn about how um, dumb war is for example what are they what are they fighting for in that one like where where what side of of, of the bread, should it be buttered on or something along those lines? <laughs> anyway, that's what the war ends up being about. And they get this weapon of mass destru- destruction, i.e. Gulliver, this giant. And he's supposed to kind of like, they're fighting over who gets to use this weapon. And and there's definitely some satire there. Um, but more overlooked are the other three journeys. And we're not going to focus on even the second or third one, although those are pretty entertaining. There's like a flying island in one. And, and uh, I forget what the other one's about. Anyway, we're going to focus mostly on his fourth journey. And I'm choosing the fourth journey because it is arguably the most boring, but the most philosophically interesting, and perhaps the most biting in terms of its political critique of Western civilization. It's also, I use it in history classes because of its biting critique of colonialism specifically. Um, And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So any any thoughts before we kind of dig in? Nope. Okay, so... I'm going to do just a real quick like background on what the fourth journey is. Hopefully it's not super long and boring. Um, but long story short, um, Gulliver, our character of which Swift makes his political assertions, Gulliver um, is now going to lead his own journey his own like whatever like he's always been a doctor on other people's um, boats he now has his own boat he's got his own crew and he's gonna go on his own adventure uh long story short uh eventually he ends up being mutinied against by his crew because his crew just like many were in the 1700s was made up of like pirates and criminals and whoever really had nothing left to live for so they decided they're gonna go on a boat and seek adventure anyway mutiny takes place and Gulliver's ass is dropped off on what he thought was a deserted island once he comes to, he um, comes into contact with a couple of creatures, different species, if you will, and he makes some observations about those species. The first species he comes um, in contact with will eventually be named yahoos. These are basically like primitive hominid creatures. Like At first, you, when you, if you're reading the story with no background, you think, oh my god, these are like wild animals, but eventually we come to realize they're actually like primitive humans. Um, they don't have the gift of language. They're not really in charge of their society. It's very, very primitive, but it it gives us a window into what Jonathan Swift wants to say about human nature. Okay. So that's the Yahoo. The other group of species, the other species he comes in contact with are called like Wynnums. It's spelled very differently, but, but Wynnums is how it's pronounced. And these are basically Horses, But these horses are completely rational creatures. They even have language, as he soon learns, and they're able to communicate, and um, they have their own society, their own dwellings, and it turns out on this island, it's sort of like a, a world turned upside down where the horse creatures are the rational ones and the yahoos are the beasts of burden. So the horses run society, and the humans work for the horses or are controlled by the horses. Right off the bat, what do you think Jonathan Swift doing with this this kind of like literary device by flipping this relationship around? He's already making a critique. Yeah, I think it's
1: a commentary on the way that humans view their status in nature and sort of the primitive status of animals and of other
0: men, etc. Okay, the second part of this that I think is super important, and this is where I sometimes bring in my more colonial critique, or excuse me, I analyze Swift's colonial critique in history classes, is that coming to this society where there are an indigenous population that is based on completely rational behavior and their ties to the natural world or natural law, as Jonathan Swift asserts, for me, oftentimes is his somewhat misinformed attempt to represent indigenous cultures during the colonial era. And he represents the European colonist, and it is his colonial attitudes that eventually we're going to analyze here that critique Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add there? I agree. So with that brief background, we eventually get to a point where Jonathan Swift is, is is he's essentially saved from Yahoos. Yahoos kind of attack him. They even start like taking excrement, they literally like like shit and throwing it on his head and stuff like that. And one of these winnems, these horses, comes up and f- essentially saves him. It's actually two of them. Long story short, they take him. They they're like, This is an interesting creature we've never seen before. We're gonna take him and 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 study him and get to know him and um Eventually, he is able to recreate the sounds they're making, which for them is a shock. For us, it'd be like a a dog learning how to speak. So so they're 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 won over by him a little bit and his ability to, in their minds, reason. So this is where like the conversation begins. As Gulliver begins to learn the language of the Winnems, he decides he needs to kind of like learn about them while also teaching. Um, the Winnems about who he is and where he 's from, and so the rest of the story is essentially a conversation between the two of them um well not the yes, the two of them Gulliver and the main horse that ends up he call it he calls master. this is the one that saved him and he ends up living in his home and all those types of things the rest of the, that 's why it was never converted into a children 's story it 's mostly a conversation. Mm-hmm. This conversation though, when one has to like explain everything about humanity, specifically in this case, Western civilization, colonial civilization during the 1700s, when one has to explain it to a completely rational creature that has lived for generations under natural law in connectivity with nature and their own kind of like rules that they live by that are unwritten, what tends to happen? I guess it's it's essentially us holding up a mirror to what we could be Mm -hmm. and having to explain to the other Who we are? What happens when we have to like fully explain everything we are from language to law to why we go to war to our political systems? Again, think about explaining that to a creature that is completely just to Spock, to complete rationale. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It seems completely
1: ridiculous. Many of the things.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, just like it's almost like when a child asks you like why is x y or something Mm -hmm. and rather than fully like answering them and fledging out the answer you we dismiss it we dismiss it or i'll teach you when you're older or like whatever just it's because I say so, or something like because that. Because so
1: much of our life is completely irrational,
0: and that's what really Jonathan Swift. That's why this literary device is so perfect. So um, we spent a lot of time kind of building context. Let's now dig into the conversation again. At this point, I fast-forwarded through the part where like they learned a little bit about each other, and 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 Gulliver now knows the language. I that we're done. Gulliver now knows the language, and he's having to explain to his master really why he's there. Like, how did he end up here, and what happened, and. He comes up with this idea that um, uh, it is criminals. It's criminality that led to Gulliver being marooned, so to speak, on this island. And the horse, the winnem in this case, his master, asks essentially, well, what, what's crime? Like, how does crime come into being? And when you ask a question like that, Gulliver realizes to a completely rational creature, he has to go back and explain, like, all of humanity's missteps that led to crime. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that Gulliver decides he should explain to his master about where, like, um, uh, crime comes from is just the simple art of lying. That's, like, the first step. That's what Jonathan Swift chooses, like, one of the first steps leading to criminal activity. Okay. And I quote from Jonathan Swift as he's explaining lying. He says, And I remember in frequent discourses with my master concerning the nature of manhood in other parts of the world, having occasion to talk of lying and false representation. It was with much difficulty that he comprehended what I meant, although he had otherwise a most acute judgment. For he argued thus, that the use of speech was to make us understand one another and to receive information of facts. Now, if anyone said the thing which was not, that's how the Wynnams talk about lying. They don't even have a word for lying. It is the thing which was not. These ends were defeated because I can't properly be said to understand him and I'm so far from receiving information that he leaves me worse than in ignorance for I'm led to believe a thing black when it's white and short when it's long and these were all the notions he had concerning that faculty of lying so perfectly well understood among human creatures. And that's it. So we would spend, you know, obviously we can write an entire treatises on why humans lie, and the Wynnum, a completely rational creature, he has, like, I mean, it's it's two sentences. Like, why would you lie? Communication was invented by all sentient beings as a way to help each other, whatever that might be, get food, achieve water, build a shelter, whatever it might be, that's why we communicate. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to communicate in a way that actually makes communication harder, what What's wrong with you? That's irrational. Why do we lie?
1: I mean, I can see people making, I have seen people make the argument that lying and deceit and so on is like a survival device. We're like, language was created, right? For us all to like collaborate and survive and find food and shelter, et cetera. But if I can like lie to you and you're none the wiser. And so I can say, oh my God, danger's coming and you turn around and I steal your food or whatever. Then I have, I'm better than you at survival. So lying is ridiculous,
0: but that's an argument I've seen. Lying was invented for selfish reasons that we agree upon. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what Jonathan Swift is thinking about. If we think about it this way, if we think about all of the species that communicate, which is like every species, but like what level, I guess we could debate, Mm -hmm. but let's take the next level, next highest form of communication that we're at least aware of as of whatever 2020, we're going to date this episode. Um, orcas, dolphins, whales, like they have the next highest form of, of, verbal is that the term i'm looking for oral communication mm-hmm. it's complex there's different dialects there's different languages we now know all this scientists have revealed this to us do you think that there's ever a dolphin in the pod that like lies about the location of the fish they're trying right. to find or yeah. i mean what do you think? Like that, that's what the horse is after. Like, why would you ever do that? Mm -hmm. I am in a pod. My pod helps keep me alive. I'm part of this group. Why would I ever want to deceive them or ever need anything like above and beyond what I already have?
1: I mean, I think your point is key that it's completely selfish and like egoistic. And I don't know if dolphins are selfish or egoistic. My assumption is not, but I'm not an expert in dolphin communication. So I I'm just using like the next
0: highest form example, yeah. and I, I would just predict – a uh, dogs. Do you think dogs lie to each other? No, I can't imagine. <laughs> is that cat lying to One me? One of his barking, like, and like, the other yeah.
1: dog is like, where's the intruder? And you're like, ah, I got gotcha. you. Like, that's <laughs> probably not a thing.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So we do it for selfish reasons. Where does this selfishness come from? We'll get to that in just a second. Further on lying, I want kind of like our listeners to think about it this way. Like, how many times have each of us like lied just today in listening to this episode? And if we think about it, they're all related to sense of ego and sense of self. Even the most small, mundane, inconsequential white lies are still about us. So an easy example that I like to use when I'm teaching this in classes is, let's say you were walking down the halls of school or work or wherever you are, and somebody said, how are you? And if you were having a rough day, which often we are these days... If you still said good, that was selfish. And we did it for selfish reasons. Why would I say just merely dismissing something as easy as, how are you doing today? And you saying good rather than actually explaining, oh, I'm not so hot. You know, I got this going on. I got papers due. I got like whatever. I got to fill out these spreadsheets, whatever my my head hurts. I got a headache, whatever it is. Like, why would we just good? Because we don't want to have... I mean,
1: there's so many reasons. We don't want to have the long conversation probably about our shitty day, but also like we don't want to come across as like vulnerable and less than good. Yes.
0: That's the selfishness there. Or I'm just in a hurry, but still I am in a hurry. It is about me.
1: I mean, someone can make the argument like, well, I'm saving them from having to talk about my troubles, but no one does that. Okay. We'll
0: tie to that. How do these pants make me look? Right. You would argue... Well, you, this fictitious you, second person framing is whatever, but whatever. We would argue that we're saving people from like if they really do look awful in those pants or that dress or that jacket or that hat or whatever. We're saving their feelings, and it's really mm-hmm. about them. It's not. We're saving ourselves from their reaction. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're saving ourselves from their reaction because we don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts?
1: No. Okay. Usually Have people seen- debate.
0: Usually people debate me on that one, but yeah.
1: Have you seen the movie, The Invention of Lying?
0: The one with, uh, what's the British guy? Ricky Gervais. Yeah, yeah, that one. Oh, dude,
1: it's so good about lying. I mean, the movie's not great, but it's such a good commentary on lying. And like,
0: yeah, it's hilarious. So if we even start from the basis that the very, like, even the base, most white lies we tell are still lies. And those still lies are about, like, self and self-preservation or whatever, self, self-achievement self in some cases. We can obviously scale that all the way up to, like, the big real lies that we know are about theft or uh, 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 political power or mm. crime or any of those other topics that he wants to get to. But he wants to start with just the most base form. Communication was invented to make make us all of us work together better and if we why would any rational creature invent a form of communication that undoes that ability for us to work together Mm -hmm. makes no sense and that's kind of the rationality argument that jonathan swift's digging into anyway as this conversation between him and his master like continue um he he adds this he says it put me to pains of many circumloc locutions to give my master a right idea of what i spoke for le- their language doth not abound in variety of words because their wants and passions are fewer than among us so while these horses have a relatively complex language and they can communicate each other he's com- communicate with each other they don't have a variety of words um because he says their wants and passions are fewer what do you think jonathan swift means how is he critiquing in this case he we would say the english language because he's irish and he's mm. under english rule so he's critiquing the english language and there are so many words in the english language yeah, those he's dictionaries saying, are basically
1: thick. we have so many words for things for all of the things that we want and that we desire because we have so
0: much desire and why is that a critique, though, during the colonial era, do you think? why, Like this idea, this d- desire things, materialism, we would say, why
1: is that I the- mean, we're insatiable, right? And like the colonial effort
0: is a result
1: of that insatiability. We have to go out and seek resources and physical things
0: from all across the globe. As the conversation continues, I'll push it through, through uh, Jonathan Swift's um, um verbs, or words. Verbs. There are verbs in here. Words. Okay. He says, During this discourse, my master was pleased to interrupt me several times. I had made use of many circumlocutions in describing to him the nature of several crimes for which most of our crew had been forced to flee their country. The labor took up several days' conversation before he was able to comprehend me. He was wholly at a loss to know what could be the use or necessity of practicing these vices. To clear up what I endeavored to give him, some ideas of the desire of power and riches, of the terrible effects of lust Intemperance, malice, and envy. He goes on to say, Power, government, war, law, punishment, and a thousand other things had no terms wherein that language could express them, which made the difficulty almost insuperable to give my master any conception of what I meant. So let me be blunt. He has come across a society here that is completely sustainable, has been working together for what we assume are, you know, maybe centuries, maybe thousands of years, and it is just, it's perpetuated itself. But this society has never even needed a word for things like law or mm-hmm. war or intemperance or malice or envy. What's Swift saying about, in this case, his own people, the mirror? What is he saying about, again, Western civilization?
1: I mean, he's saying we are all of those things, right? We are envious. We are malicious. We are so forth. And that we've invented entire like
0: linguistic systems to do... Describe all of our atrocities and, and they rationalize had to do them. That. Yeah, and rationalize them. All right. So my favorite critique is right now. We'll get to maybe one other critique after this. So as the episode's not super long, but my favorite critique, of course, is the critique against war that Jonathan Swift pro- provides. And obviously, during the colonial era, it is nonstop war. In fact, I would argue that Western civilization's entire existence is war. Yeah, it's still. We are, we are, we are war. It's like we, we kind of rationalize to ourselves, like we're only going to war to make peace, but we never actually do. We are in constant Mm -hmm. warfare, Roman empires and Greek city states and British empires and crusades and American imperialism. And we can do this all day. Like we are war. We are one of the most violent cultures that have ever existed.
1: Freedom is the end game for right. war, but it's really, we're just about the means. And that's the point. great
0: irony here, is we'll separate us from more warlike cultures, but those warlike cultures are still us. The Third Reich is Western civilization. Right. Mm-hmm. So, that's, that's one of my, well, whatever. We'll keep moving. All right. He asked me, this is the Winham, the master, asking Gulliver, he asked me, what were the usual causes or motives that made one country go to war with another? Because, again, they have no war in this society. So he's having to explain war from its most, like, base form. Like, what kind of idiot culture or idiot civilization or idiot species willingly kills other members of its species to such degrees? You have to be completely irrational. That's Swift saying. That's what Swift's saying. So he says, I answered that the reasons for war were innumerable. But I should only mention a few of the chief. Sometimes, here's the first one, sometimes it's the ambition of princes who never think they have land or people enough to govern. Okay, that's the first reason. What is he saying? Like, what is this example here? I mean, it comes from
1: individual desire to have more, right? They want more land and more people to govern. To expand upon their own personal riches,
0: right? Why are we insatiable, though? Like, like this. Now I'm asking you, as a sociologist, you and we go through like ideology all the time on this podcast, and that's our favorite class to teach still. So, mm. what might like we I, ideology rationalizes this this kind of lust for power or things or whatever? Mm. What ideologies during the colonial era of these princes might be playing a role in the 1700s?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely religion, definitely yeah. like a. It's not capitalism yet, but we're getting to, like, early mercantilism and so on. So we have religious, economic—I um, I don't want to say racism yet, but race, sort of a dehumanization or a pseudo-speciation of different human beings definitely plays a role.
0: Well, Swift talks about it. He actually yeah. talks about people of different, like, complexions and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, so he does. All right, cool. So here's—that's the first reason. The sex second reason is— that we go to war. Sometimes it's the corruption of ministers who engage their master in a war in order to stifle or divert the clamor of their subjects against their evil administration. One of my favorites is the second one. So essentially, what is he saying here?
1: He's saying that any time that people begin to rise up against the, I don't know, he used the term master or ruler or whatever, that they will use war as a tactic to essentially quell any type
0: of rebellion. Can you think of any times this has happened even in the post-Swift era? Hundreds? I don't know. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, I mean, Western civilization is founded on this idea that our society is problematic, and we get that you're upset, but look at those people over there. Your life sucks because of them. Don't blame us at the top of the proverbial pyramid. Your life sucks because of X, Y, and Z, because of immigrants. They took our jobs because of whatever. These people want to take your freedom, or whatever it is. Or even the French Revolution, right? In
1: the episode we did on the French Revolution, we talk about how they started this war on absolutism during the turmoil in the society to create solidarity and give someone a common enemy.
0: Like, that might not be mind-blowing to many of our listeners, but the mind-blowing part of this is Jonathan Swift is saying this in 1726. Like, mm-hmm. we, our modern political theorists have, you know, this is, Noam Chomsky calls it, like, the thief-thief-like argument or whatever mm-hmm. of, of, like, how we create an other to get people to ignore the awfulness of our own society. Well, but that's, Jonathan Swift saying this in the 1700s. How is he overlooked I just it yeah. blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, what's another? Where's our number? Our number three. Uh, Our number three here, he says, difference in opinion hath cost many millions of lives. For instance, whether flesh be bread or bread be flesh, whether the juice of a certain berry be blood or wine, whether whistling be a vice or a virtue, whether it be uh, better to kiss a post or throw it into the fire, what is the best color for a coat, whether black, white, red, or gray, and whether it should be long or short, narrow or wide, dirty or clean with many more. Neither are any wars so furious and bloody or of so long continuance as those occasioned by difference of opinion, especially if it be in things indifferent. That's fire. We will kill each other in the millions over differences of opinion. Mm -hmm. That is the sign of a wholly irrational species.
1: Well, and even his examples are great because it just the minutia of things that we will disagree over that have just astounding consequences is, like you said, completely irrational.
0: For him, this example is very clear. Being a Irish under English colonialism, but you know, bread, be flesh, or whatever, he's mm-hmm. clearly talking about Protestantism and Catholicism yeah. as it impacted, of course, his life. But we could argue, we could take this all the way up. Any religious war is one of the most ludicrous wars that we could ever think of, and one of the most wholly illogical and irrational things humans can engage in. Um, the Abrahamic faiths, all three, have been fighting each other for the better part of 2000. 2000- years and what are they fighting over the nature of an individual that lived 2000 years ago it's a joke Mm -hmm. it's an absolute joke is he a prophet is he god was he just a cool guy that was trying to help people did he even exist or is he just a story fine those are all differences of opinion should we kill each other in the millions over that right absolute joke Mm -hmm. another easy example cold war capitalism versus communism and republicanism versus like whatever socialism how many people died during the cold war right and and people like are like well they didn't really fight oh they did in vietnam and in korea and in panama and in egypt and in all of these other places these little proxy wars Mm -hmm. grenada um afghanistan like millions of people died over what economic system works the best laughable laughable we're a laughable species Sometimes the quarrel between two princes is decide which of them shall dispossess a third of his dominion, where neither of them pretend to any right. So here's like the what, what are you on the fourth reason people go to war at this point? Um, he basically says like at this point, sometimes there'll be like three nations involved, and two will go to war over which one gets to conquer the third. Yeah, this like, is clear. Uh, yeah. This is clearly yeah. a critique of colonialism. One hundred percent. Yep. So, essentially, in this case, what we would argue is, let's use an easy example here. Why would the French and British go to war over and over again over their colonial possessions, of which they're both trying to dispossess, let's pretend it's in North America, First Nations of their wealth and resources and land? Mm-hmm. That's what they're going to war over. Yeah. Or Spain, the United States, and Cuba. Or yeah, go on yeah, so right. many examples yeah. here. Sometimes one prince quarrelleth with another for fear the other should quarreleth with him. Okay, so reason number five. Okay. So, you might I'm, fight with me, so I'm just going to do it preemptive. Yes, yeah, we, we, that's rationalization. This mm-hmm. is a preemptive strike. Like, get lost. Preemptive strike. Right. Rationalization. Sometimes a war is entered upon because the enemy is too strong, and sometimes because he is too weak. That's an interesting one. Now, the two-week one, we can kind of pick up on, like, kick a man when he's down. Like, that's something Western civilization has clearly been built upon over and over again. Um, we'll just take this, like, weaker group. Like, there, there's a plague or pestilence or something. We'll take over. But w- we go to war when our opponent is too strong as well. What do you think he means by that? I think
1: this is also a narrative on colonialism, where if our, quote-unquote, enemy starts to expand too much and have too many colonial projects and, st- as a result, starts to gain power, then we very clearly must go to war with them. The Cold War, we can bring that up again, right? The Soviet Union was incredibly powerful, and so we must have this
0: like global battle, right? Right. And, it, and the United States vice versa for them. Yep. okay All right. Sometimes our neighbors want the things which we have or have the things which we want, and we both fight till they take ours or give us theirs. That's honestly, I can't believe that's that far down on the list because most <laughs> yeah. people would argue that's like that's where the first war started. was wars over resources, so to mm-hmm. speak. So that one's pretty self-explanatory. It's very justifiable cause of war to invade a country after the people have been wasted by famine, destroyed by pestilence, or embroiled by factions among themselves.
1: Yeah, invade while they're weak and take control, Again, kicking them
0: while they're down. Uh, The the easiest example, again, is colonization. Like, let me be blunt. Those Spanish conquistadors did not stand a chance against the Aztecs had the Aztecs not been, like, completely wiped out by pandemics. Mm Mm-hmm. Same thing in North America. Let's keep in mind that the only reason English colonists ever got a foothold here is because of French trading. There had already been disease wreaking havoc up and down the Atlantic seaboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Moving on. Like, he's got so many reasons regarding war here. It is justifiable to enter war against our nearest ally when one of his towns lies convenient for us or a territory of land that would render our dominions round and complete. Um, I kind of stumbled over that one, but essentially he's saying if if for territory purposes, it just feels like it would be convenient for us to have it, we'll go to war. Even if it's our ally. Yeah, yeah it's... Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. If a prince sends forces into a nation where the people are poor and ignorant, he may lawfully put half of them to death and make slaves of the rest in order to civilize and reduce them from their barbarous way of living. I mean, clearly... Straight up Thinking colonialism. Yeah. Yeah. Calendar. From his lens, he's leaning of obviously more to what he's witnessing with the Irish people, um, of which they are like this was ethnic cleansing. Like the British mm-hmm. were ethnically cleansing Ireland. But I'm assuming he was also well aware of what was happening on the west coast of Africa. I'm also assuming he was well aware of what was happening on the um the Atlantic seaboard or in the Caribbean of the Americas as well. So like this is I mean, this is it's it's disgusting. But like
1: back to the sort of the meta conversation he's one of the few people that is having conversations like this talking about really global events
0: at the time and we overlook him and again i mean think about it like every time someone in one of these civilizations goes on some sort of campaign what he's saying here is we want these people to think and act or like us or at least give us their stuff or die or die. That's who we are as a civilization. Mm. That's who we are. So if you are on some sort of like religious mission, you're not saving anyone. What you're doing is ethnically cleansing a way of thinking. It's still the same thing. That's what he's after. Yep. Raise them up to live like us. Right. And, and again, now I'm reminded of something that was written, um, you know, hundreds of years later, the white man's burden by Rudyard Kipling, which right. is essentially like this rationalization, mm-hmm. like they don't know any better. So we have to teach them how to be like us. Why are we like this? I have no idea. That's a conversation for either an anthropologist or a philosopher. I right. Don't know. Clearly, the United States is like the biggest manifestation of that now, but we learned from the mm-hmm. best of the best, the British, yeah. and they learned from the best of the best, like all of these European kingdoms, and those European kingdoms learned from the ancient best of the best, the Romans. Why are we like this?
1: I mean, we can make the argument, which we do oftentimes, even though I don't fully buy it, that like just human beings are insatiable, that we're... Selfish and egoist, and so on. Though I would argue that we're socialized into thinking like that, but the origins, who knows?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've we've theorized in other episodes about these origins because 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 I firmly believe that humans are not naturally like this, mm-hmm. I fully believe we are socialized into being this way, into being assholes. Where that socialization began is where the debate is, but yep. you can go look at some of our episodes regarding that. Either way, this is still a fire critique, okay? Um. It is very kingly, honorable, and frequent practice when one prince desires the assistance of another to secure him against an invasion that the assistant, when he hath driven out the invader, should seize on the dominion himself and kill, imprison, or banish the prince he came to relieve. So two nations will work together to, like, save them from another invader, and once that invader has been vanquished, they'll take the, 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 the guy that came to help, or the nation that came to help, will just seize the nation it came to help. Yep. American-Filipino war, anyone? Yeah. we're going to help the Philippines liberate themselves from the awful Spanish colonizers but then when actually thanks for the help America you can on you go nope Cuba same thing yeah. yeah Spain and United, United States. States sticks around in the Philippines forces their constitution upon them creates concentration camps of which as many as 40,000 Filipinos died in here we have it Uh, What's another good example here? Uh, Alliance by blood or marriage is a frequent cause of war between princes, and never the kindred is the greatest is the dispossession to quarrel. Poor nations are hungry, and rich nations are proud, and pride and hunger will ever be at variance. That's pretty obvious. Wars mm-hmm. well. it kind of back to resources a little bit and the reasons behind those resources. This is where this is the last statement. and arguably the most controversial one that at least in a classroom um, here in the United States, when people hear this, they get a little bit offended, but it's not my words. This is Jonathan Swift. He says this as he closes out. For all of these reasons, the trade of a soldier is held the most honorable of all others, because a soldier is a Yahoo hired to kill in cold blood as many of his own species who have never offended him as possibly he can. Yeah, that's fire, And I can see how people would be offended. What do you think of it? He's saying like, that th- th- the soldier, in case you forgot, Yahoo is just like the most base primitive human you can think of. It's also where the search engine, search engine got its name, too, is from this book. But anyway, it's, that's funny. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, he's saying, like, how irrational is the soldier who is willing to, at the behest of some leader, go and kill other human beings to such an extent without ever critically questioning
0: it's like the example I think we did in one of our like nationalism videos when we were talking about World War 1 and it's like if that French soldier without a uniform on had just met that German soldier without a uniform on at a pub in again just pick a town Marseille or Frankfurt or whatever something mm-hmm. it, And they were just hanging out. What would happen? They'd share a beer. They'd talk about their families and their dreams, their hopes, their dreams, what they do for a living. Everything would be fine. But the minute they put on that that jacket with a little cute French flag here, a cute little German flag, Bismarckian flag, they're willing to just kill kill each other. Well,
1: even like, I love the Christmas truce example of World War I, where like, it just exemplifies exactly that. It's Christmas, let's all put down our arms, and let's play soccer in the middle of the trenches, and like, let's all get along for a brief period, but tomorrow I'm going to shoot you in the face.
0: And we could just do this example over and over again. How many Jewish citizens actually compromised the German economic integrity before World War II? Like, none. (laughs) None. And six million died because of it. Right, Because the Germans were able to convince others that these people that had never personally wronged them, and that's the part that I like the most, Exactly. negative. Same thing, war on terror. Like, no one in a Middle Eastern cave is trying to take anyone's freedom, but you're convinced they are. Mm-hmm. How? How are you so easily convinced? Right.
1: Yeah, It's it's the great abstract, right? Like you said, no individual from this race or this religion or this country has ever wronged me. But like yeah. the abstract of terror or of like these things that we've invented to yeah
0: go to war. So the, uh, we'll probably do one more topic. Uh, we basically just kind of completed war there. Before we move on to this next topic, like thoughts, like on it, like kind of wrapping it up. So basically, um, even though it felt long, sorry, listeners. Uh, his section on war is really like it's it's not even two complete pages, and yet he un- there's so much there to unpack and un- yeah. we don't need like giant thick books and treatises on war. We don't what's what's War and Peace by uh, Tolstoy. We don't need yeah. that. Like it's right here in less than two pages, and we could talk about it probably forever with numerous examples. Is this why he's overlooked? I mean, like, is it, it, does he simplify it too much? I actually don't think he does. I think simplification is the best way to analyze the illogical fallacies that humans live their lives by. What do you think? I
1: completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's all there, right? It's at least a very good starting point for the expansion upon like all of these ideas and so on.
0: So okay, the next concept that he picks on. So we've talked about language slash lying. We've talked about war. Here's the one I want to talk about: law. And this one's actually funny enough, even shorter than war in his critiques of law. Um, I guess real quickly before we get like Swift's uh, uh, opinions on law, like what is law? Like I mean, we just got done talking about power and 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 monopolies on violence and these types of things in other episodes. Mm-hmm. Like, where does law come from in, in this case, not just Western civilization, but essentially all civilizations? Like, why do we have laws? Why do laws exist? Like, a logical creature would argue, and so would anarchists, that natural law is more than enough for people to get along. Like, not everybody you meet is trying to, like, kill you or rape you or take your things. In fact, most people don't want to do those things. That is not inherently self-interested to them, nor is it in the interest of a species. So where did these laws come from? Like, why are we doing these things? Why do we do these things and then why do we create laws to
1: stop them? Yeah, there's so many different arguments. I mean, the I would go with just off the top of my head that the elite create laws to control the behavior of everyone else. But why do they have to control law.
0: Why do they have to control our behavior? That's what resources. They have the monopoly, mm-hmm. and they want to keep that monopoly on resources or violence or power or whatever it is I mean, we even see the
1: earliest written laws right have to do with things like property and taxation and so on,
0: yeah, so I argue vehemently that 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 at most you might need three or four laws in a society that gets a little bit too big like don 't kill don 't rape, and don 't do weird shit to kids like that, like that, those are basic things that like I think every society across time and space, has really agreed upon, regardless of Western civilization, Eastern civilization, indigenous societies, they're they're all relatively, like, that's pretty consistent. It's pretty Mm -hmm. consistent. Maybe even we can pick on the Ten Commandments. Those are pretty consistent across the board. So when we start getting into laws, and we've brought this up in other episodes, the first set of written laws, Hammurabi's Code, 282 laws. Three of them might deal with what I just talked about, killing and things like that. But what are the other 279 laws about?
1: Property and wealth.
0: Yes, control over resources and distribution of resources and the narrative that rationalizes that distribution. We then move to the next civilization, right? Of course, we've got the, the Greek tablets or the 12 tables of Rome, and it just gets more and more complicated. And one of my favorite stats to cite is the 20,000 plus federal laws in the modern United States, which they stopped counting again in the 1980s because they just ran out of time. They could not count all the laws here. So if we get back to the basics, murder's wrong. Rape is wrong. What else might be on that like like universal list? I don't know, but whatever. There's there's like four or five like universal things. Everything else is what? Property. Control. Mm-hmm. It's control. And that's what Jonathan Swift is talking about here. He thought nature and reason were sufficient guides for a reasonable animal as we pretended to be in showing us what we ought to do and what to avoid. So the fact that we have laws, Jonathan Swift, the fact that we have so many laws, even by the 1700s when he's writing, is actually reveals what about us?
1: That we're incapable of managing ourselves. We're
0: out of control. And we're completely unreasonable. So we're, and he's writing this during the Enlightenment too. Keep that in mind. Where we're like, again, we're we're pretending that we are logical and rational and reasonable. And he is arguing we're anything but. And this is proof why. I said there was a society of men among us bred from the youth in the art of proving by words multiplied for the purpose that white is black and black is white according as they are paid. To this society, will the rest of the people are slaves? He is talking specifically about lawyers. He's basically saying there is a group of people in his society that are now paid to lie. They're paid like it's it's actually revered in their society or to manipulate truth to the extent of their own personal gain. And it's actually revered. So while he's saying like criminals do this to the detriment perhaps of themselves or their societies, lawyers are doing it for the opposite reason. But they're both liars. What Mm -hmm. do you think of that?
1: I think it's great. It's a good critique of law in general. And then in, in this specific case, right, the lawyers are the people in a society that enforce that law as a result of their manipulation of truth, according to him.
0: Or legislators as well, we could yeah. argue, or, or, or Supreme Court justices or what have you. I think one of the most interesting things that we see here is that, again, these lawyers are able to manipulate communication and truth for their own personal interest and because they are compensated to do so, and in his case, monetarily. So now he's not speaking specifically about like human civilization or Western civilization in in some, now he's only speaking to modern. Because even like the ancient Greeks and so on and so forth, they didn't, you represented yourself when you were accused, and you had to, like, well, Socrates is the most famous, right? The apology. But, like, you represented yourself. In Islamic culture, you represent yourself. You have to go out and find your own witnesses. Like, this is something that is baked into Western civilization, and it's not until modernity that you have these representatives that are more eloquent with words and manipulation and maybe even charisma that you pay to lie for you, whether you're the criminal or whether you are the uh, the prosecution, the state, the people, whatever it is. What do you think of that? That's no, good. He's saying that this money aspect of law immediately delegitimizes law.
1: Yeah. And it obviously unfairly benefits anyone that can
0: afford, has the resources to afford better lawyers. Continuing on with law, he says it is a maximum among these lawyers that whatever hath been done before may legally be done again. And therefore they take special care to record all the decisions formerly made against common justice and the general reason of mankind. These under the name of precedence, they produce as authorities to justify the most iniquitous opinions and the judges never fail of decreeing accordingly. Mm-hmm. What's he saying about basically precedent, something that all Western laws built upon? Yeah,
1: that if it's happened before, it can happen again, legally or illegally,
0: depending on what we're arguing. But even if that thing is wildly irrational, yep. and eventually he's going to get to unethical or immoral. Mm-hmm. Just um, the fact that it's it exists as a
1: precedence says nothing about whether it was right or wrong. Right. But it's now become right
0: simply because it's happened before. Right, Dred Scott. It's, yeah, just so many examples. Um. I mean this is I mean again and he spends a couple of pages talking about like the law is actually re- re- even though western civilization uses law as like one of the major measures and it definitely did during the colonial era that's one of the things they they critiqued of all indigenous you don't have a written set of laws then yeah. nothing you do is is legitimate yeah it's one of those things that we we use to like rationalize our ability to be reasonable and here Jonathan Swift is basically saying the existence of law and lawyers and the entire court process is actually It actually reveals the opposite. Hmm. We live unnaturally, we live illogically, and we live unreasonably. Completely. Okay. Um, Continue on just briefly with this idea of where money um, kind of influences this illogical way of life. He says, therefore, since money alone was able to perform all of the feats, all of the feats that we just got done describing, um... Our yahoos thought they could never have enough of it or spend or save as they found themselves inclined from their natural bent either to profusion or avarice, that the rich men enjoyed the fruit of the poor man's labor and that the latter were thousand to one in proportion to the former, that the bulk of our people were forced to live miserably by lever- laboring every day for small wages to make a few live plentifully. He is saying this in 1726. We don't need fancy like videos about socioeconomic stratification or like eat the rich Karl Marx is not even remotely alive yet. What is he, 80 years from being alive at this point? And Jonathan Swift is saying this. Yep. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, now we're revealing some of the ways why he might be overlooked because no one wants to hear about this, right? No one wants to hear this scathing critique of the economic system this long before, that, like, a Marx or someone was actually critiquing it with the more famous people that we know now. And if you teach this in school, then you have to teach how unfair the socioeconomic system is and the fact that people were complaining, uh, at least even satirically, against it way back then.
0: So, and I think that's what people miss is like, yes, you could take the first journey and turn it into a cute kid's story and that's all we need to learn about Jonathan Swift or even his shorter like essay, A Modest Proposal, where it's just a great example of satire and he doesn't really want you, he really doesn't want poor people, e- or excuse me, rich people eating poor, poor babies or whatever he proposes. But in this case, this is a much more biting critique than even a modest proposal. Like this critiques everything that his society is built upon, argues, makes it rational and justifies its existence and its actions. And
1: uses as an example of how it's civilized and better than other primitive societies, right? Which is absurd.
0: Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I think that, like I said, I mean, it's often overlooked for all of these reasons, and I think it's maybe dangerous to learn about. But I also think it's, it's key that we get to, get to see that it debunks the mythos that. Modern problems and modern critiques of those problems are like the only thing that, that that has ever existed. It's it's this presentism that we kind of have when we look at, again, social or political or economic issues. Basically, what we're saying here is the trajectory we're on is not natural, nor is it reasonable, nor is it logical. And people, even people that live in that society, Jonathan Swift's personal life was not bad, were willing to look at it hundreds of years earlier and tell us we were on the wrong path Why did we stay on this path? Why are voices like Jonathan Swift's over and over again muted throughout history? What is at play here?
1: I mean, our entire existence, our entire society under which we live right now is can be jeopardized if we actually confront and have to face all of the critiques of the way that we exist, our relationship with nature and with each other and so on.
0: He's part of what we call the storytelling class, just like every critical professor or thinker or whatever the Socrates is to the Foucault's and everybody else we've analyzed in between. Um, All of these people that are part of the storytelling class that actually use their privilege to critique it, yet we still don't listen. We're still on the trajectory. We're still on the trajectory. Yeah, we're
1: uh, like we're on a moving train, right? And it's, we have to stop the, we have to be willing to stop the train and that most people aren't willing to do that. Most people aren't even willing to entertain conversations about stopping the train, let alone actually do something about it.
0: I mean, I want to be fair. He does critique the wholly rational, natural, indigenous, quote unquote, society a little bit by like arguing that that's one of the reasons Gulliver ends up getting kicked off this island. after They, they realize like, look, you... The, the, the rational creatures a um, do have beasts of labor it is the yahoos so they are exploiting another species so he does he is willing to admit that about this rational species that they also have a little bit of exploitation in them mm-hmm. and then secondly the fact that they're so rational that they um, they need to get rid of him like they basically say like look you've revealed this about uh, about yourself and where you're from and that's disgusting and you can't be here anymore <laughs> and you've got to go right anyway Gulliver ends up like being found by like a Portuguese merchant or pirate or one of the other, I forget. And he ends up going back to his family and he hates it. Like he's disgusted by like every human he comes into contact with. He hates it. And that's kind of like the moral of the story. Like humanity is disgusting once you look at it from like a far enough away lens. Mm-hmm. In fact, like that's like he ends up going out to his horse who is not like it's just a regular horse. Like when he gets back to, to, to humanity he just he and he spends all his time with just his regular horse like talking to it and stuff like that. Like that's how the story ends. So he's not fully uncritical of what What we would call a natural rational society. He would actually, and this is the one critique that I want to throw in just to be a little bit more balanced, I suppose, which is rare, but whatever, more balanced, is he would argue that what we see in this story is that over-rationality and reason and complete subsistence on natural law can also render a society inability, unable, excuse me, unable to be flexible adaptable and creative Mm -hmm. that's essentially one of the morals we see when he critiques like this this wholly rational society what are your thoughts on that that these societies lack that and you see it over and over again in like hollywood movies and stuff like i don't even know what's a good example of like what is it the 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 giver is that the one where they're like in the like a, a dystopian society in the future And, like, it's, like, pseudo-socialist and, like, that everything's fine. Everybody has everything they need, but it's not good enough. It's black and white. And it's not until I look back at our more creative, violent Mm. past that I get my humanity as one. Like, every story we have is about that. Like, it's cool that everybody can survive and live equitably, but that's not what being a human is. A human is passion and violence and hate, and that's humanity. Like, why do we—what's wrong with us? God, I don't know. You bring up so many points of, like,
1: why like we've discussed this extensively. is it the giver is that what i'm thinking of yeah okay yeah where the kid becomes like the giver and he yeah. has the okay. gift to view history and so on yeah it's the giver um which i never watched until my students were like dude you have to watch this movie and then i finally did but mm-hmm. um we talk about all the time like how there's whatever that would be a whole new episode talking about the critique of hollywood and how they never actually critiques anything anything real right yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. We'd like to be entertained as long as it doesn't violate the norms that we, and ideologies that we consider to be sacred, right? So we'll have the example like The Giver, it's like you said, it's black and white and whatever, and everyone's really surviving and they have their own jobs and like it's a decent society, but it's like sterile in a way, right? It's not what we would consider to be like you said we want the passion and the war and like that's what it means to be human which is just ridiculous a lie it, yeah. i mean i'm trying to
0: think of other examples i don't know whether if there's any trekkies like the idea of the borg mm-hmm. and how like the borg is getting by just fine and like this is this great evil this like equitable groupthink evil or whatever mm-hmm. like this is somehow bad like it's like it's challenging the idea of individualism and exactly. like what like, what? Like, yeah. like uh, that's fine, but look where that individualism and this idea of passion and war have gotten us. I'm not saying we all need to, like, think alike and, like, share brains like the Borg. I guess I should be clear there. But, like, that's—they use that very overt critique, like, this very, like, in-your-face, like, this is what—honestly, I think this is what socialism looks like, or this yeah. is what communism looks like. Like, that's not what it is. Which but, is, like, like,
1: ironic because the, like, Whatever. The equity of Star Trek is very like it's egalitarian and but the, yeah, but there's a
0: good way to do it and a bad exactly. way to do it, right? Yes. Like
1: uh, you, we need to have individualism <laughs> and we can all be individuals and still have equality somehow but we can't go far enough to where
0: i mean there's so many other other examples i mean transformers is probably even a more obscure but like that's actually what the the bad guys the decepticons wanted was an equal distribution of resources back on their home planet and then we get this whole thing where like optimus prime's fighting for freedom i don't i can't think of any catchphrases from transformers i have no idea but but that's like another example at the top of my head from my childhood where Mm -hmm. like it was really being beat into me that like like, rationality and equal distribution of things and ideas was, like, bad. Like, But I think it's important that on the surface,
1: many narratives, whether it's in whatever, in fiction, seem to challenge the dominant narrative. But in reality, they're just reinforcing it. And I think that's right. lost on so many people.
0: Right. Right. Well, Jonathan Swift isn't. Um, yeah. he, he, he's not apologizing for anything. He's pretty straightforward. We would also clearly argue that as one of the great storytellers of all time, this is why this is his least popular work. Um, again, when you learn about Gulliver's Travels, you only learn about the first first journey, whether that's in a children's book or a crappy Jack Black movie. It's really only like the first one. The others are too critical of again western civil- I'm using that term very specifically. they are too critical of Western civilizations like founding ideals and behaviors to be like public, so this is where we see other storytellers like overriding one of their own that has mm-hmm. gone rogue, so to speak right um so anyway um yeah, I mean, that's the fourth journey of Gulliver's Travels in a Nutshell. And coming back full circle to kind of how we started this episode, I thought it was interesting to bring up because this was written, again, in 1726, I believe. Someone correct me if I'm wrong in the comments. I don't have it in front of me. I guess I could scroll, but whatever. Scroll. What? Where are we? <laughs> anyway, I guess I could look. But anyway, regardless, he's saying these things that, again, every cute meme tries to say nowadays. He was saying these 300 years ago. Yep. Why didn't we, if we didn't listen then, what makes you think we're going to listen now? Right. You want to take us out?
1: Yeah, that's it. Find us online. We're at com. You can uh, get with us on Twitter. We're at Rev and Ideology. Um, I'm going to direct, I think, people to probably the most related video to this topic is when we did, I think it was two episodes on the origins of inequality is basically what we were exploring in human nature. And we talk Mm -hmm. about Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau. And we even get and talk about David Graeber and David Wingro and like more modern opinions on human nature and so on. I think that's really, really related to this. So check those episodes out as well. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.